This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. What's up, Elevate? Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. What does the word redeem mean? Like you're going to redeem a coupon. What, what does the word redeem mean? God gives us a very startling picture of redemption in the Old Testament. The nation of God's people has split into two, and the top half is titled Israel. And the bottom has called itself Judah. And Israel is plummeting down into sin. Every king that they have is worse than the one they had before. And God sends Hosea not only to speak a message to God's people, but to live a message to God's people. And it's a very unsettling one. God speaks to Hosea and says, Hosea, go And bring a wife for yourself out of prostitution and make her your wife. And in obedience to God, he does. And he brings a woman named Gomer out of prostitution and makes her his wife. They have three children together. And each of the children have very significant names. Because what Hosea is going to live is not just about Hosea's life. It is a symbol to the nation of the nation's betrayal against God. The nation is represented by Gomer. And true to form, this woman that he has made his wife begins to cheat on him and take other lovers and soon leaves home, leaves him and his children and returns back to her lifestyle of prostitution. But things go even worse for her than before. Her lifestyle of prostitution is is brought so much depravity into her life that she can't even provide for herself anymore, that she has to sell herself into bond servanthood, into slavery, just to survive. And God speaks to Hosea and says, Hosea, my people Israel are just like her. I took Israel and I made them mine and I blessed them again and again, and yet Israel has turned from me, their true husband, their loving husband, and sinned and started chasing other lovers, other idols. They started pursuing other gods. Now, Hosea, go find her. Purchase her out of her slavery and bring her home. Then clean her up and make her your bride again. Now, when Hosea finds her, he finds her in slavery for sure. But the price of a bondservant in the Old Testament is 30 shekels. Hosea only has to pay 15 for her because her depravity and the filth of her lifestyle has made her not even as valuable as a common slave. And he redeems her. This is... The picture of redemption is to be purchased back. And it's also a picture of us apart from Christ. Hebrews is written to an audience 
that have come out of Judaism and they loved their their profound sacrifices and, and the beautiful holidays and the gorgeous temple. And they've been saved to Christ, but now because of persecution, they're tempted to go back to their old ways. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you're going back to emptiness. They're all rituals. All of them are good, but all of them are good signs and symbols that are only pointing to what is true, what is real, what actually redeems. Tonight's emphasis is how Jesus is so much more superior to anything they could have gone back to. He was superior to the prophets and angels and Moses, but he's also superior to the covenant that they left, the former covenant, the old covenant, the old covenant that pointed to Jesus's new covenant, which means that Jesus was superior to the priesthood. He was superior to the tabernacle. He was superior to the old covenant's promises. And tonight, everything hangs on the fact that he is superior to the sacrifices that they used to give. We're going to begin in verse 11. These are the verses that hinge last week's discussion on the tabernacle, the most beautiful sign of all that they had of God's presence with his people, but not fully. And it's going to roll into our topic of tonight. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, we talked about the priesthood, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he's talking about heaven, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his very own blood, thus securing eternal redemption this is how he redeemed us. And all of these elements that it's talked about is what we've been building up to. We've been talking about his priesthood. We've been talking about his tabernacle. And now we're talking about his sacrifice for our redemption. Now to fully understand where we're going, we have to kind of get a picture that Gomer is not just an Old Testament symbol. It's a testament to who we are without Christ. Let's see if I can make this work with my super sweet whiteboard here. Sound effects are necessary. So let's consider this person as apart from Christ. There are four things our author is going to deal with. First, apart from Christ, much like Gomer, our hearts are black and full of sin. They need to be transformed. Ezekiel says that God would take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Second, apart from Christ, we are poor and destitute. So let's imagine our guy here sitting next to a begging bowl where he's depending on society to care for him, to survive. We are poor and beggars. We have nothing of our own. Much like Gomer, who had to sell herself into slavery. Third, we find ourselves, as Romans says, of slaves to sin. We are servants. 
slaves, slaves to our own nature. And we will either be a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. And what's beautiful is that Romans 8 says that he takes us as slaves and he makes us sons and daughters. And finally, again, like Gomer, we find ourselves filthy. Covered in our own sin and unable to purify ourselves. It's like being covered in mud and having muddy hands. And as we try to wipe the mud away, it will never do. And this is who we are, apart from Christ. And this is what our author is going to deal with, is four different places that Christ's sacrifice saves us and redeems us. And he's going to approach each of these four. The priest's work of the old covenant was an IOU year after year. And as he would come and bring this blood sacrifice of an animal, he would know that he had to do it again the next year. An animal's blood was carried by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus Christ has presented himself in the presence of God as the final and complete sacrifice for sins. Jesus' sacrifice transforms our hearts, entitles us to an inheritance, redeems us, and purifies us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. I want to draw your attention right here. Purify our conscience. This is an internal work. This is something deep down inside. Our hearts have to be changed, have to be transformed. And so he's saying, he's not con contrasting a bad thing to a good thing. He's contrasting a good thing to a great thing. If God would honor the blood of goats and bulls, for an outward purification, how much more is the blood of his own son going to penetrate deeper, going to work on our hearts? Imagine the sheriff's office called your house and they said, look, we need to have a thief, convicted criminal thief, spend the night at your house for the next three days. And you're like, whoa, wait, hold on, hold on. So has... Has this thief been rehabilitated? No, actually, we convicted yesterday. Uh, well, uh, are, are you going to be spending the night, you know, having some deputies there? No. But what we are going to do is we're going to send a team ahead, and they're going to come into your house, and they're going to lock down every item that you own so that it is physically impossible for this thief to steal anything. How do you feel about them spending the night at your house now? Like, maybe passable, but the threat is still there. It's still someone who is evil by heart, who you don't know, have no relationship with, who is in your house. You see, the old covenant dealt with a very external thing. Sure, everything in your house is, is externally locked down. You're dealing with an, a surface issue. But the issue that you have with the thief is not 
necessarily that your stuff is not locked down. It's that that thief's heart has not been changed. This is the old covenant versus the new covenant. The new covenant must deal with something beyond the surface. It must deal with our sinful heart. Hebrews 8.10 is quoting Jeremiah 31, and he says, This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my laws into their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. God is going for the heart with this transformation. Ezekiel 36.26 says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians when he says, for if anyone is in Christ, he is now or she is now a new creation. Jesus' sacrifice deals with our hearts. And I love this. Just as a side note, this is so profound. He actually mentions this idea of sprinkling with the ashes of a heifer. I had no idea what that meant. But when you dig into Numbers chapter 19, this is a very specific cleansing for someone who has interacted with a dead body. Perhaps you had a loved one that died and you have to move their body for the funeral. Now they would have to go through a cleansing ritual to make them clean again. And it involved taking the ashes of a sacrificial heifer for sins, a cow that had been sacrificed for sins, and mixing those ashes with water and sprinkling that on yourself. Why that particular sacrifice? Because the old covenant dealt with cleansing after an interaction with a dead body, but it can never deal with being spiritually dead inside ourselves. It can't resurrect what is spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter two says, you were dead in your trespasses. Not unconscious, not severely wounded, not mostly dead. You were dead in your trespasses following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. Listen right now. And were by nature, by heart, children of wrath. That was who we were, dead. Predisposed under the wrath of God. But Jesus has a weird effect on corruption. Jesus touches the woman with an issue of blood. <clears throat> she should have made him unclean, but she was made clean. She, she, he touches a man with leprosy, and Jesus should have been infected, but the man is healed. Jesus touches dead bodies and robs the grave. Only holiness himself can touch a sinner and resurrect the spiritually dead, dealing with the heart. If we could be good on our own, we would not need atonement. If we could do enough to please God, we wouldn't need a savior. But God loved us and he gave himself for us.
So number one, Jesus' sacrifice transforms us. Number two, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We're gonna stop there. We're gonna come back to that at least. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, not like your human will, like I will to go out to eat at Cain's. This is talking about someone's legal will, their last will and testament. When they die, their will goes into effect. That's the will that he's talking about here. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. The Jews struggled with this idea of a Messiah who died. It was one of the temptations to go back to the old laws. Our Messiah is supposed to be this, this everlasting kick butt out or kick Rome's butt, get them out of the country, Messiah. But he died. And the author takes advantage of this word covenant because it can also mean last will and testament. And it goes into effect upon death. So he's arguing that it wasn't, that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die because it was the only way that the new covenant that he's inaugurating will come into effect. So who will the new covenant come into effect for? It says plainly in verse 15 that he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal redemption. Upon Jesus' death, those promises are applied to his own people, the people that he called out of darkness into a glorious light. Our sovereign God is not reactive. He's not waiting for someone to choose him so he can now choose them. Our sovereign God loved us first so we would choose him. Who are the called? They're you and I, they're Christians. And what are the terms? What comes into place upon Jesus's death? You see, there is this will, this new covenant, and it's hanging in the balance. And it's waiting for the death of the will maker on behalf of the children of that will maker. So what happens upon Jesus's death? Two huge things. The first, it says in verse 15, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We have a guaranteed future. Romans chapter 8. I'll give you a minute to turn there. If you're in Hebrews, go left. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We were destitute and hopeless. We had nothing, just like Gomer. Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says this, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery. Think of Gomer, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When do we become heirs? Upon the death of Christ. Because the will goes into effect. So what does whatever Jesus inherits, we become joint heirs with. This is something that I found really interesting in studying Roman culture of the first century. You see, for Jews... If you had multiple kids, your eldest, the firstborn, would receive a double portion. So if you have three kids, you take all your, your wealth and you divide it in four pieces, and the eldest gets two, a double portion, and everyone else would get a single portion. Did you follow that? So if there are five, divide it in six, and the eldest gets two. Are you with me? Yes? But Paul is not writing to Israel He's writing to Rome. And in Roman culture, it's an equal split across all of your children. And if you are adopted by a Roman family, under Roman adoption, by witnesses, and through the parent adopting you, removing your debt and paying off your debtors, you become a joint heir with the current sons and daughters of that Roman family. So when we look right here, we see in Romans 8 that it speaks of the Holy Spirit being a witness. And by Christ, our debts are erased and we become joint heirs with Christ. So what does Jesus inherit? Hebrews chapter one, verse two says, he was appointed the heir of all things. So what does a Christian under the new covenant because of the death of Christ inherit? All of heaven with Christ. Everything the son inherits, we are joint heirs with. Spend a few minutes wrap your mind around that sometime. Not only are we set free and transformed in our minds? But we are no longer beggars, but we are heirs. Not really sure how to represent that. There we go. That's a fun way of doing that. Joint heirs with Christ. Third, Romans chapter 9, back to verse 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, what does this death do? It redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. So in the same way that Gomer was redeemed by money, God appointed that we would be redeemed by blood. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it, given it being blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, life or blood represents life. Spilled blood represents death. And it is death that is the punishment for our sin. So God has appointed that 
there would be a substitute for our death. Something else, someone else would die on our behalf. You see, if a person's crimes are deemed by a judge or a court that they are worthy of execution, that court, that judge is not satisfied until that execution has been carried out. Redemption demands blood and mercy himself provides a substitute. Jesus went to the true holy of holies, God's presence to redeem us. And he brought a sacrifice of his own blood as a substitute for us. Forgiveness is a costly, costly thing. See, forgiveness isn't God overlooking our sin because of his love. It's not like God sees us and he's just like, nope, I'm just, nope, just gonna... Nope, I don't even see it because I love you so much. No. Forgiveness is God taking the punishment of our sin because of his great love. He would be an unjust God for him to ignore sin, but he is both the just and the justifier that he gave himself for our sin. When the priests entered the Holy of Holies, when the physical high priest entered the physical tent, all of it being just symbols. He would go in before God, carrying the blood of the sin sacrifice. And everyone outside of the Holy of Holies would wait anxiously. Elevate, are you with me? They would wait anxiously because if that high priest went in to the Holy of Holies where God's presence was manifested and he was not pure, his sacrifice was not worthy, he would die. And so they would wear bells around the bottom of their garments so they would hear him moving knowing that he was still alive on the other side. But it was even more important because if that priest came back out, not only did it mean that the priest was worthy, but who did the priest represent? Yes, Leighton, the priest represented the nation, God's people. So if the priest came out, it didn't just mean that the priest was made acceptable before God. It meant that the sacrifice was worthy and the whole nation was seen as acceptable before God. You see, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, presented himself before God, and he came back as well. When Jesus returned three days later from the grave, we know that we, who were represented by our perfect high priest, were made acceptable and worthy towards God. It was his resurrection that we waited anxiously on for three days, that his disciples cowered in fear for three days and had no idea the significance. But it was his resurrection that showed that me and you, despite our sin and our corruption and our ongoing battles because of our faith put in Christ, we stand in right relationship before him. And Jesus proved it through resurrection. Every one of us will die. And we will either die in Christ with him as our representative or we will die being our own representative. And it's not pretty. Elijah once said, in this life is grace, but after this life there is justice and eternity. 
Who will pay for your redemption price? Will it be Jesus at the cross or will it be you for eternity? Is a question we need to confront on a regular basis. So Jesus redeems us. I've already broken the chain over there with my red marker. He's transformed our hearts. He's made us heirs of heaven and he has redeemed us from slavery. Fourth, let's go back to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Remember Moses splattering blood on the people who made promises to keep their covenant with God? For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the covenant, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on the tent and the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and... Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Under Moses, the tabernacle and the altar and the people were seen as purified by the blood of animals, but they were only symbols, shadows, copies, types. They had no real cleansing power. There needed to be a superior sacrifice. I love what Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. Malachi says that this coming one, this coming Messiah is going to be like a launderer washing clothes, and he's going to purify you. He's going to be like a silversmith, and he's going to crank up the heat to purify the silver of his people. I love how he says that Moses in verse 20 says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. But there was the covenant that everyone broke. Because that was the old covenant. Jesus would inaugurate the new covenant with blood as well, with his own blood, and he points to this when on the night he was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples and held up the cup of wine as one last symbol before he would go to the cross. And what did he say? This is the blood of the new covenant. In my blood. Luke twenty two twenty. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. In my blood. Jesus became sin so that we would be counted as holy. And what has he done? It was his blood that purifies us. Way more than an eraser can take off ink here but you get the symbolism. He's covered under the blood of Christ. She's covered under the blood of Christ. By his steps, by his stripes, we're healed from our sin. Ephesians 2.13 
speaks of why God did all of this. Why is the tabernacle so important? Why did he redeem us with his blood? Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This whole thing since Genesis 3.15 has been God's work of salvation, has been God's saving mission for us so that we could be with him again. Jesus was our forerunner into the presence of God, meaning he made a way so that we're no longer barred by a curtain. It ripped, symbolizing we could enter into God's presence and he could enter into us as his new temple. Thank you, Lord, for your work in us. You know what's really cool? In Hosea, as you get to the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3, Hosea prophesies a new covenant. Hosea speaks of this Davidic king that would come and inaugurate it because this was us, a part of the old covenant. And this is us transformed under the new. I think that I think that there are a lot of stories in this room of you and I knowing the weight of our sin and finding hope in a Savior. And I think that there are stories in this room that need to be shared outside of this room. I think there is hope that a dying world, sick, corrupt, filthy, enslaved by their sin, need to hear. And it begins with a story of Jesus and how that story applies to each of us. We need to be more than casual Christians because the world is not neutral. It needs light. It needs hope. And it needs the blood of Jesus Christ. May we be a people who don't just live but also speak truth. I heard the story of a pastor and he talked about someone in his congregation that was a boss over a company. And this boss was a Christian and he'd been praying for a certain employee to come to Christ. And when this employee came to Christ, the boss celebrated, yeah, I'm so glad I've been praying for you all this time, and, and now we can celebrate that we're brothers in Christ. And you know what the employee said? The employee said, actually, it was you that, uh, it was one of the reasons I, I hadn't gotten saved until now. And the boss said, I've been praying for you. I've been, I've been trying to live, you know, a godly lifestyle in front of you. And you know what the employee said? Yeah, I saw how good your lifestyle was, but I never knew you were a Christian. So I thought I could live good just like you did and didn't need Jesus. There was no testimony that came with a saved lifestyle. May we be people who live truth and people who speak truth too. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.